This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book, and it is the series, the book of Joshua, Judges and Ruth, and this evening it is number one of the study in the book of Ruth. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together, and those of you who are listening, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a moment or two while we read chapters 61 and 62 of the prophecy of Isaiah. This evening we are turning our attention to a very wonderful little book in the Bible. At first when you read it you can hardly believe that the same, at the same time there were those dreadful things going on which we associate with the book of Judges that were a little bit mistaken if we uh, feel that even in those times there were those who feared the Lord and waited upon him. We read in those days there was no king in Israel and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And of course we immediately, and I think rightly, assumed that in most cases they did wrong. But of course, you see, we're going to have one little exception and it's good to know these exceptions. That here was a little family that did wrong but ultimately, by the mercy of God, it was rectified and became a wonderful picture of utter, devoted faithfulness. Now, in an atmosphere like you read in the book of Judges, to have a story of utter, devoted faithfulness is something we ought to be thankful for. And you know, the scripture warns us that we should not be pessimistic. We haven't got, got to be so sillyly optimistic that we never call a spade a spade. We realise the departure from the truth on every hand and we are sorry for it. But you remember the scripture is written for our learning that says, Elijah, he said, I only am left and they seek my life. What saith the oracle of God unto him? Yet have I seven thousand men who have not bowed a knee to the image of Baal and the prophet didn't know one of them. So, the scripture says, there's always been a remnant according to the election of grace. And if there could be a remnant of grace in the days like the book of Judges, friends, I suppose we can even believe there could be some in the days in which we live. And so we come to this little book. There are passages in this um, book of Judges, if you just look back, for instance, to chapter 10, verses 1 to 5. Chapter 10, verses 1 to 5. And after Abimelech, there arose to defend Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he dwelt in Shamir, in Mount Ephraim. And he judged Israel twenty and three years, and died, and was buried in Shamar. And after him arose Jair, a Gileadite, and judged Israel twenty and two years. Well, that's twenty-three years and twenty-two years. What's that? Forty-five years. And he had thirty sons that rode on thirty ascolts, and they had thirty cities. And that's the end of that story. Forty-five years, that's all the Bible tells us. That one man judged and died, and the other man had thirty sons who sat on thirty. You see, don't you see? Forty-five years and not a single word except that. So there are these oases in the history when the times are as bad as can be. So let's take heart, friends and uh, realise that we should never be 
without opposition, but we shall never be without saving, sustaining grace. Now we come into this book of Ruth for its own sake, and in the first case, will you glimpse at the chart that we have to just get a little idea of its general disposition of subject matter? That's a very long way of saying its structure. Ignore for the moment the words kinsman redeemer that has yet to be proved. We did in the first chapter departure and the, the focal point is that the sons of this pair Abimelech, uh, um, Abimelech and uh, Naomi they both die and they die childless and then Naomi says to the widows that are left well so far as I'm concerned I can have no more children. We'll have to find out why she said that in a moment. Then if you look at the other end of the story, chapter 4, when Ruth is married to Boaz and gives birth to a son, we find that this is, is better than seven sons. And where in the first chapter the inheritance is lost or forfeited because in death it's gone, in the last chapter the inheritance is redeemed. So we have this Blessed sequel. It's a love story, this. And like true love stories, it should end up they lived happy ever afterwards. Whether they did or not, I suppose once now and again they differed a little bit, but there's the general run of the thing. It's a blessed story of departure, yet restoration. And then we have a strange expression that occupies the centre. Chapter 2, Kindness to the living and to the dead. And unless you know the story, you may wonder whatever they could do in Bethlehem that could be kindness to those who are dead and buried in the land of Moab. But it's got its meaning, as we shall see. And then, in chapter 3, the kinsman redeemer steps into the story that the name of the dead be not cut off and the inheritance that belonged to them be lost and forfeited. So it's a very simple plot. There's a departure, there's a period of loss. There's an utter piece of faithfulness in the midst of it all which leads on to restoration and the great picture of Christ which comes out is the kinsman redeemer. Now we'll leave the rest of the analysis for another study because I want to give the opening chapter a consideration. But I would ask you to notice when it's got the word kinship that this little book contains more references to different kinds of kinship for its size than any other book in the Bible. It's something which is impressed upon it. So you see, there are one, two, three, four different Hebrew words used to indicate next of kin, or kinship. So we mustn't miss that, must we? Well, that's waiting for us in another study. Shall we look now at the beginning and the end of this chapter 1? Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. Now we stop there for a moment. Famine. Famine's a dreadful thing at any time. And famine is mentioned more than once in the scripture and it turned out to be a severe test. We won't say there was famine in the Garden of Eden. But the test that God gave was a very elementary one. Something to eat, that's all. It tripped up that man and his wife. And the children of Israel in the wilderness, 
having seen the hand of the Lord opening the Red Sea, they tripped up over the can God give us meat to eat in the wilderness. And when our Saviour started his public ministry, even he was subjected to the first initial primitive temptation, if thou be the Son of God, what are you sitting there starving for? Command these stones to be made bread. It's very humbling, isn't it, to us with our high and mighty ideas that the best of us, if we are touched with famine long enough, would turn in almost to brute beasts and lose all our so-called refinement. Here's a famine. Do you remember Abraham? He believed God. He left over the Chaldees. He came out. And then famine struck the land. And they went down to Egypt. And Abraham, the father of the faithful, he told a white lie. He said to Sarah, now if we're going down to Egypt, I know what's going to happen because you're a... It was nice for Sarah to be told this by her husband because I understand, as far as I know, husbands don't say that very much to their wives, you see. He said, you're a very fair woman to look upon. It's rather awkward to have to say it at that moment instead of saying it some other time. He said, I can see what's going to happen. Sarah will take you and put you into his harem in Egypt. And I should be executed. Now you say you're my sister. And then of course if I'm any your brother, I shan't be put out of the way. Because he said, oh how natural. You are my sister, he said, with a nice beam on his face. She was, you see, because of the relationships. And then when they got down there, if God hadn't intervened, Isaac would never have been born, the seed would never have come, Pharaoh would have spoiled the lot. And God intervened. And then later on, Isaac is struck by famine. And sure enough, he says to his wife the same thing. And Abimelech has to be stopped by God, otherwise he would have upset the whole program once more. How easy it is for our little fears to enter in and spoil the very purpose of God. But we see that those interventions on the part of God, he allows us to go so far with our responsibilities but he hasn't put the purpose of the ages upon our free will or our obedience. He could put out his hand and stay fair and stay Abimelech if needs be. So that's a comfort. So famine is one of the things that we have here. You may say, well, of course, we can understand in those primitive times it may have been a test. Oh, is that so? Would you allow me just to read the passage? I won't tell you where it comes from because you'll know immediately I start reading it. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You say, what's it got to do with famine? Well, he says, that's where I concluded and ended it, but I did say this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine. Oh, he mentions it. It's in the New Testament as well as the Old. This primitive test. And so we have the test coming here. In the Lord's Prayer, which our Saviour gave to his disciples, instead of praying for all sorts of spiritual blessings, it puts right in the middle of it, give us this day our daily bread. And you remember Solomon? He says, give me neither poverty nor riches. For if I have riches, I may be bombastically proud, and if I have poverty, I may steal for bread. 
And I suppose you do know that in that Lord's Prayer, when it says, give us this day our daily bread, it's a word that's not found in any Greek literature anywhere outside the Bible. It almost was a coined word by our Saviour. Give us this day the bread that cometh down upon us. Well, you know what that is, don't you? That's bread from heaven. And in the book of the Revelation, the persecuted church is sustained miraculously in the wilderness three years and a half with bread from heaven. They'll pray the Lord's Prayer as no one's ever prayed it yet. And so you see, here we have the beginning of this story. Famine. Well now the, the peculiarity is that these names and things that we're going to meet have all got a sort of bearing on the story. A certain man of Bethlehem, Judah. Well, you say, he couldn't help living in Bethlehem, could he? No, it's put down, it's a bit of geography. But is it an accident that the word Bethlehem means the house of bread? The house of bread. So here's a person who lives in a little village called the house of bread, who leaves it and goes down to Moab because there's a famine. Oh, that's what happened so many times, you see. God had given them their place, and it was called by that name, and not only so, it's called Bethlehem Ephrata, in the next uh, verse. And the word Ephrata, the Ephrathites, means a fruitful place. So it's doubly blessed. It's a house of bread, and it's a place of fruitfulness. And so they go down to Moab, because a famine strikes them. Now, easy for us, of course, to criticise this man and his wife. How many times have we had to face a little dearth of something, something held up, and then we get all of a panic, and we begin to think round what we're going to do about this and do about that, and we put out our hand to save the ark of God, and then when it's all over, if we'd only waited just long enough, God knew all about it. And he tells us and assures us that our walk through this pilgrimage will be accompanied by such tests, God said to Israel, I suffered you to hunger just as surely as I fed you with bread from heaven. I did both. And I had a reason for it that you may know that man doth not live by bread only. Well now, what was the name of this man? The name of this man was Elimelech. Well, you say, what's his name? Elimelech. Yes, we've got it there. Eli. El is God. Melech is king. My God, Eli, is king. So he lived in the house of bread and his name was My God is king. And he went down to Moab and lost everything. Life, sons, inheritance and everything. It might have been a wise move from a worldly point of view but it was a tragic move from a point of view of faith. So we've got a Limelech whose name means my God is king, acting as though he had no God and no king. For to go down to Moab or go down to Egypt, as Abraham did, is to turn your back on the land that God had given them and depend upon the resources of the outside world. But what about his uh, wife? His wife's name was Naomi. And uh, that name means sweetness. And you remember how at the end of the story, verse 20, chapter 1, she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, 
call me Mara? For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. That's the word Mara, bitterly. But we're not told that they had a little prayer together and said, Oh Lord, give us thy wise direction as to whether we should go down to Moab. They go down there, they suffer the consequences, and they come back and say, God's dealt bitterly with me. Have you never done things like that? You read about some dreadful accident. Say a ship goes down in the Atlantic. And then people say, well if there's a God, why didn't he stop it? But you said, did the directors meet together with a prayer meeting and ask him anything about building it or sending it out? Or they'd been silly, wouldn't it? Oh, I see. How easy it is for us to blame God when the thing turns out the wrong way round. And how easy to forget to thank him when in spite of all, he brings a redemptive work in and brings it back again, as we shall see is what he does. And so we get these names which are distinctive and are part of the story. But what about the sons when they got down into the land of Moab? We are told that um, they had two sons. The name of one was Maron and the other Kilion. And one means sickly, pining. And the other means uh, I'll put them sickly and pining. I was thinking that that was an alternative. Two names. Fancy a, a man whose name, my God is King, and his wife, Sweetness. And they call their sons sickly and pining. It's rather suggestive, isn't it? Because, you see, it's one thing to have a name, and it's another thing to have the nature. It's one thing to be able to say, I live in the house of bread, but when there's a family nice street down to Moab. And so we've got this story. It's working up to a tragedy, isn't it? You can see it coming. Then it says here, And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left, and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. Now we're not quite sure whether they were justified in doing that or not. No Moabite was permitted to enter into the house of the Lord for ten generations. And the Moabites were descended from Lot. And Lot was a relative of Abraham. So that they were distant relatives. Their relatives. Distant. But they were forbidden to a large extent to have intercourse with one another. They took them wives of the women of Moab, and the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. We're not quite certain about the names of these ladies, because a little bit different language, it might not be possible. But there's the two of them. And they dwell there about ten years. So they were a long time away from Bethlehem. And then the first stroke falls upon them. And Marlon and Kilion died. Both of them. Both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Well, that's a backhanded way of saying it in modern expression. 
her two sons and her husband left her. But she was left without them. You can understand what it means. There is a tragedy. Three widows in a foreign land. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law. So you see, it's very long to say her daughter-in-laws, as we so many, many times do. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, and she, that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Whether that means that the famine lasted ten years, or whether it means that the report didn't reach them until this time, or any significance is more than we can say. But when they were at this last extreme of their difficulty, the three men gone and the three widows there, the message comes through. There is bread in Bethlehem. And wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. And when you read a little bit like that, you're already warned elsewhere that they're not all going there. You remember, Abraham came out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he went to the land, he went onto the land of Canaan, and he got to Haran and stopped there. Oh yes. And here it is again. They, three of them come out to return unto the land of Judah. But one of them turns back. But we haven't got to that point yet. This word that they, they read, or which we read just now, God had visited his people. You remember that that is used in quite a number of places uh, as a special term. Not meaning to pay a visit like a friendly visit, but it means a visit that was crucial it had a redemptive touch about it, and as I've got one or two references here, I'd like to give them to you before we pass on in our story. You go, just turn the page back to Genesis 50, and you'll see that Joseph refers to the deliverance of the people of Israel by this expression. Genesis 50, verse 24, And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die. You notice these in these early days, they didn't make any fuss about this. He said, I die. Just come to the end. And the day that Moses died, he walked up to the top of the mountain. You see, they just came to the end of their term. And God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land, into the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from hence. A pledge of resurrection to sustain him right the way through. Visit you. And when God visited them, he redeemed them. Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say unto them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob, appeared unto me, saying, I have surely visited you, and seen that which is done to you in Egypt. And then you get in the book of Luke, about the Lord has visited and redeemed his people, in the first chapter. So here's an expression that slipped in here, 
they heard that the Lord had visited his people. And so they were using an expression that was already embedded in scripture, already in use, a redemptive element about it, not merely a casual visit, as you might have expected. So it says in verse um, 8, And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you, as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that ye might find rest. Now here's a special word that is used here. Uh, I just want to make sure, I think it's the word menuka. I may have written it down on my paper, so I'll get it spelled right. Yes, menuka. It means a special kind of rest. The Lord grant you that you may find rest. You'll discover in chapter 3, verse 1, that Naomi comes back to the word. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? And the rest was marriage. Now, of course, from an up-to-date point of view, it might be said that your troubles begin when you get married. You see? And the last thing on earth to say that you're going to find rest, well, you won't, you see. But if you go back to these early primitive times, for a woman to be unmarried and a woman to have no children was such a disgrace that her life wasn't worth living in comparison. So, Naomi used that expression. This is where you should get. This is the goal in front of you. And you know, some people are rather speak about the frankness with which the Bible speaks on certain things but that's far preferable to the insidious uh, the New Testament word you trap a liar which means not merely a jest or a pleasantry but a double meaning expression so that you're dropping poison into the person's mind by subtle suggestions these were primitive people but they were truer to nature and to fact so it says here the Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said unto her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. And Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters. She wasn't urging them to come back. And you may say, Well, what a strange thing for her to say to these women. Why will ye go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Well, why say that? Well, we've got to acquaint ourselves presently with the law that was in operation in Israel, and Naomi knew it. We'll turn it up presently. But the law was this, that if a man married and he died and there were no children, that inheritance was suspended. It was forfeited. It couldn't be carried on. And that was a, gr a grievous thing to happen to a nation that was made up of tribes and families and inheritance like Israel. So the next of kin, the husband's brother, whoever was the next of kin, was under an obligation to marry the widow. And if they had children, the first child of that new marriage was not named after his own father, but after the man that was dead, that the inheritance might not be lost. Of course, it's a wonderful picture of what Christ did for us. And that was what it was in the mind of Naomi. And Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters, I shan't have any more sons. 
I am too old, too old. If I should say I hope, if I should have a husband also tonight, and should also bear sons, would ye tarry for them till they were grown? You see, unless you know the rule, you say, this is an outrageous thing to say to people, but she was telling them plainly. There's no hope in this for you. It grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And again, they lifted up their voice and wept. It was a sorrowful party. And Orpah kissed her mother. No, kissed her mother-in-law, that's right. And he doesn't say Ruth kissed her. Oh, I suppose she may have done. But he says, and Ruth clave unto her. And so I think sometimes kisses could be cheap, can't they? Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, turned back and went back to Moab. Whether Ruth kissed her mother-in-law or not, I don't know. But she craved to her. And she went with her. Which, of course, is the greater test of faithfulness. And she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back unto her people and unto her gods. That shows you that Moab was idolatrous in a general sense. Unto her people and unto her gods. So we must remember that Ruth belonged to that people and have been brought up under their gods. We must make all that allowance. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. And Ruth said, I don't know if I'm going to read these words properly, friends, because I suppose on the surface I give an appearance of being pretty hard-hearted. But there are some things that catch me out. And that's sometimes seeing a little kid playing on the pavement and don't speak to me for a minute as I go by, you see. So I'll do my best. But I have to blame it onto the tape recording if it doesn't come out quite so clear as it should. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. Aren't they wondrous words? It makes you think of the words written in the New Testament about the action of another woman. That wherever this gospel is preached, wherever it goes, that woman's attitude to the Lord will be recorded and remembered. And these words are just an utterance of utter faithfulness in a land of departure. As you think of the character again as we look to the book of Judges and see what iniquity was going on there, entering into family life, entering into the life of every day. And here's this woman stepping out from Moab and her people and her gods and giving this picture. It gives your heart, doesn't it, to feel it's possible again and again as the Lord gives grace. And when she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. So, they went. The two went until they came to Bethlehem. They got back to the house of bread. And it came to pass, when they were come to Bethlehem or the house of bread, that all the city was moved about them, and they said, Is this Naomi? 
I dare say there was a great change in Naomi in that ten years. Is this Naomi? And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara. So you see, we were right to think that some of the names in this book had a meaning that we could remember. She remembered it. She'd gone out sweetness and she came back bitter. And she's not the only one who has left the presence of God because of a little lack of faith, a little holding back of trust, and then found bitterness instead. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Well, that's what happens to us, friends. If we were brought back full, we might start boasting. So you see, it's a very hard lesson to learn that the fullness and the emptiness alike come from the same hand. As I quoted just now the book of Deuteronomy, God said, I suffered thee to hunger. I didn't merely give you bread from heaven when you wanted it, but I withheld it. I'm responsible for both sides. I suffered thee to hunger. I fed thee with bread from heaven, that you may learn that universal lesson that man doth not live by bread only but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. So she said, Why call me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me? The Lord hath testified against me. I wonder whether that has a deeper meaning than merely a grumble. The Lord has borne a witness against me. Perhaps we're accusing Naomi of having no faith whatever. Perhaps she's beginning to wake up and say, Yes, I can see, I can see that what we did was not an act of faith. And all this, even the fact that my name should be called bitterness instead of Naomi, after this, the Lord has testified. He's borne a witness, and it's against me. And the Almighty hath afflicted me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem, in the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, you say that that's not very much consequence, the fact that it's the barley harvest. But on the other hand, this barley harvest is going to play a very important part in the story. So, not only did she come back in ten years' time, but she came back in the right month in the ten years. Well, I suppose that Boaz would have got to know about her and God could have arranged some other meeting, but he didn't. God arranged that this woman, Ruth, should be there at the time when she would go into the fields belonging to Boaz and meet him and the restoration would be complete. We're not dealing with fate or fatalism. But we are re becoming reassured from this story that God knows all the movements and he's never out of time. It was in the barley harvest when this took place. And so we come to chapter 2. And it starts. And this is now the very pith and marrow of the whole story. I'm not going into it. 
except to, to give the first verse. And Naomi had a kinsman. You see, the very first, after we got them back again, the very next thing is, not that Naomi found a little house and moved in and argued about what curtains they would have and what detergents they would use and all the things that go on in a house. The one thing is that when we got back again, the next thing is, here he is. He is the one. He doesn't know about it. Boaz doesn't know about it. God did though. Naomi had a kinsman of her husband. A mighty man of wealth. You fancy. They came back empty. And their kinsman who stopped there all the time was a mighty man of wealth and he got a barley harvest that they were gathering. It seems ironic, doesn't it? And yet how many times those things turn out. A mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech and his name was Boaz. So you're introduced to him. Now his name means strength. Jacob and Boaz, you remember, they were both two pillars that stood in the front of the temple. One meaning strength, and the other, as far as I remember, beauty. And here's the man. Oh, what a contrast to Marlon and Chilion, sickly and pining. That was one of the, one of the husbands, Ruth's husband was sickly or pining, I don't think there's much to choose between them. But when she comes back, there's a husband waiting for her whose name means strength. And he's the kinsman redeemer. And he's going to take charge of the whole thing. And this forfeiture can never take place again so far as Ruth is concerned. For he now becomes responsible. And the whole rests upon his shoulders. And so I felt this evening that we would be content, if you will, to have this little introduction. We've either got to be here another an hour, say, to go into the question of the kid's man and do justice to it, or we say, well, we've had the first little words of introduction to set the pattern, as it were. We'll come back fresh to it when we meet next time and pick up our story with chapters 2 and 3 and 4 and learn the precious lesson that embedded in the Old Testament story over and over again, there's only one person who can fill the bill. And that is our Saviour. On the Wednesday meetings, I was dealing with, among other passages, the Gospel of John, chapter 10, and the first six or seven verses, our Saviour speaks about the sheep and the shepherd and the fold and the door. And then apparently the disciples look at him and say, I don't know if they say that, but they may have done in their own vernacular. So what? They didn't understand. But you say, surely they understood. That's the very point. They knew everything the Lord said about sheep and shepherds and door and fold and robbers. And then he just slipped two words in. And it made all the difference to their understanding. He said, I am the door. I am the shepherd. Oh, I see. We knew all about shepherds and sheep and hearing the voice of the shepherd, but you were the shepherd. And you were the door. You say, have you forgotten we're dealing with Ruth? No, I haven't, friends. I'm only saying, I have a feeling you could take those two words, I am, 
and use it over and over and over again in the margins of your Bible right through the story. Here in this book of Ruth, it comes alive to us as a gospel message of restoration and peace if once we can say, Boaz is a picture of Christ. And then of course you do remember it begins with Elimelech who is, 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 it says, my God is king and it ends the last chapter with a genealogy and with that I finish this evening. Verse 18. Now these are the generations of Phares. Phares, you remember, is a descendant of Judah. Phares begat Hezron. Hezron begat Ram. Ram begat Abinadab. Abinadab begat Nashon. Nashon begat Salmon. Salmon begat Boaz. Boaz begat Obed. Obed begat Jesse. Jesse begat David. And here's the one link we must have had to get the genealogy complete. Here it is. And then when you turn to Matthew, the first chapter, into the story of chapter 1, the first page of the New Testament, Ruth comes into the story, the Moabites. And you may remind me and say, I understood that a Moabite couldn't enter. Yes, God meant what he said. The Moabite couldn't, but the Moabites could. Or would you say, that's, that's rather hair-splitting. No, no. Adam can't come into it. <coughs> Joseph can't come into it. The man's out of it. But Mary can without conveying any of the evil that comes through Adam. That's why the virgin birth was necessary. That's why Ruth comes into it and Rahab comes into it and the wife of Uriah comes into that first chapter of the book of, of the New Testament into the genealogy of Christ without bringing any stain, without bringing any entail. But no Moabite man could come in. For it's down the male line the death comes into this world. It doesn't say that all in Eve die, or as by Eve sin entered the world, it's by Adam. And so there's a meaning in all these things that go down into deeps of doctrine, and yet they're lying scattered on the surface. So there I think we'll leave it, except I think you can realise that in this picture we've got again a little foreshadowing of the restoration of God's ancient people Israel. And as this is very much to do with a wedding and a marriage, so Isaiah 61 and 62 that we read was speaking about the bride and the bridegroom and their garments and the very name of the land was Beulah, which means married, and the very name of the queen of Hezekiah is Hepzibah, my delight is in her. And so God is bringing it all round to a very happy solution, isn't he? And so when we get to the last book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation, and almost the last pages, rejoice and be glad for the marriage of the Lamb is come. So we do trust that most of us will not only be able to enter into some of the joys that can be experienced even in this life, but look forward to joys that will be unalloyed when this pilgrimage is past. We'll leave it there, pick up our story, and understand, I hope, a little bit deeper than we may at the present moment, the wonderful type of Christ set forth by Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, when next we meet in this series.